I've missed you. I miss being with the family of faith and uh, I want to say thanks so much for all of your prayers and cards and visits and calls and um, those of you that came to dad's uh, memorial service and our visitation. Um, you, you know, I'm often on, on the end of um, urging you to be the body of Christ and it was um, humbling and yet glorious to be on the receiving end of a massive uh, infusion of that <clears throat> love and uh, kindness, which is so grateful. Um, it was an uh, interesting and uh, unexpected month in many ways. I had my back surgery on a Monday, the end of September, two days later. Uh, Dad fell at the retirement home, broke his femur. Two days later, they did surgery, which was successful, partial hip replacement. Uh, but a couple days later, developed breathing problems and um, uh, got a call early on Sunday morning from my sister saying we have to decide whether or not to put dad on a ventilator. And uh, he was 91 years old, almost 92. Um, he's had dementia for about eight years. And I have been praying for about a year and a half. God, just take him home. Just take him home. And so when you're confronted with those, but now what do we do? Now what decisions do we make about a physical health, um, you have to, it's a hard decision, yet it was an easy decision. And uh, so we made that decision, and that, of course, kind of created the, uh, the end game. And four days later, Dad passed away. And uh, I was reading uh, the following week, I was reading in First Thessalonians, and uh, this was after we had buried Dad, and it, it's talked about when Jesus comes back, second coming when he comes back he's going to bring with him all of the saints all of the people who were followers of Jesus and it dawned on me my dad's going to be in that pack and it was just so glorious you know you kind of the, all the bad stuff and, and he was been so confused and we'd only moved him to the retirement home about two months before and uh, because he needed a memory care unit and he was so unhappy. He had been separated from my mom and they'd been married 70 years this summer and, and he just didn't understand what was going on. And so when that Wednesday evening when he took his last breath, blessed release, glorious, glorious liberation for him. And uh, we're sad for ourselves, but we're happy for him. Anyway, thanks so much for your ministry uh, this last month. I appreciated that. Back in the 1980s, there was a woman in England who liked to do what some of you like to do, and that's go garage sailing, yard sailing. Um, her, her variation on that was flea markets, and uh, she was walking by the various vendors' tables and spotted a little box, a collection of costume jewelry. And uh, she looked it over and uh, she decided to buy it. It cost her the equivalent of 13 U.S. dollars. And there was one ring in there. It was pretty sizable, had a little chip in the stone. Uh, but it looked old, had that vintage look to it. And she loved it and wore it almost daily for the next 30 years or so with all kinds of fashions. And then there was a day she was in a jewelry store and she's talking with a jeweler and he said, do you mind if I, I look at that ring a little bit closer? And so she took it off her finger and he looked at it through this little eyeglass that jewelers have. And he said, I, I think it's possible that's a real stone. 
And so he sent her to Sotheby's, the famous auction house in London, and they examined it and they said, ma'am, this is, a, this is a 27 and a quarter carat diamond from the 19th century. And they put it up for auction in 2017 and it fetched eight, over $847,000. Now you think about all the people that walked by that table that day or maybe days prior to that when it had been for sale. No one bought it. And they missed what was so valuable. And isn't it true that we make un, uh, value less things valuable in our lives and miss the things that are really valuable? Sometimes as dads, uh, especially, we, we miss the value of our children. We're so busy doing other things and neglecting time with them or now we're valuing leisure time and kinds of activities that just give us pleasure and we're neglecting people that are deeply loved by our God. And sometimes when we make mistakes about what's valuable, what is and isn't, the consequences are minor, but sometimes the consequences are enormous, even deadly. I want you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 118. This is not going to be our main text this morning, but it's going to set us up. Psalm 118, verse 22. In the New Testament, this is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament. It shows up in the Gospels, it shows up in the book of Acts, it shows up in the book of 1 Peter. Psalm 118, and remember, we're not sure who wrote this, but probably David. And David was not only a great king, he was a great prophet. And this is what he says in verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Now this was written about a thousand years before Christ. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Go back to the New Testament now, to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Peter and John have been um, forced to answer for their behavior. They healed a man, and the Sanhedrin called them in to examine them about this healing, and Peter gives his defense. Beginning of verse 10, he says, let me clearly state to all of you... <clears throat> And all the people of Israel that he, this man they healed, he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is, no salvation, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So if there's any doubt about who David was talking about, that's cleared away here in verse 11. Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Now with all this in mind, we're going to look at the book of Luke. We're back into our Luke series starting today. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. 
And before we begin, let's uh, turn to the Lord. Father, we love you uh, because you first loved us. Father, we love you because you offered us deliverance when we had, had no prospect of it on our own. We love you because you saw our plight and offered us our Savior. We love you because you put yourself out there on the line, giving up your one and only son so that we might have the opportunity to say yes to you in Christ. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning, each of us individually as well as all of us corporately together as a family of faith, and that you might speak to those who are here this morning who don't know Christ, who maybe think they do because they grew up in a Christian home, or maybe think they do because they show up at church, but don't. Or maybe think they do because they made a profession of faith and prayed a prayer of faith, but their lives confirm that they do not know you because they have not been changed by you. And so we especially pray that you would speak to them this morning. And we pray against the enemy who hates us and he hates you and he hates the gospel. We pray that you would silence him, muzzle him, so that you can get said what needs to be said to my heart, to all of our hearts. Uh, for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter nine, uh, 20, beginning at verse 9. <clears throat> now this is in the last week of Jesus' life. Now Jesus turned to the people again, and he told them this story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and moved to, <clears throat> to other, another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. And so the owner sent another servant. But they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do? The owner asked himself. And just stop there for a minute and imagine this was you. What would you do? You get on the phone and you call the police. You get on the phone and you call an attorney. You'd get an injunction against these, these, these criminals. Only if you've ever traveled overseas do you realize how good we have it in this country. For all of its warts and all of its flaws, our judicial system is second to none in this world. This man didn't have the opportunity to call a policeman. He didn't have an opportunity to get an attorney. He didn't have a, a law that would undergird his rights. And so, he said, living in a culture where hospitality matters, whether, where respect matters, <clears throat> he said, I know what I'll do. <clears throat> Verse 13, I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. And so they dragged him 
out of the vineyard and murdered him. And what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked. I tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should, should ever happen, his listeners protested. Jesus looked at them and said, then what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. But they were afraid of the people's reaction. Now you read this story, you think about the repercussions, you think about the actions, and you realize unbelievable crimes have been committed here. Theft. Here's a man who owns, <clears throat> excuse me, owns a vineyard, and he hires men to take care of the vineyard. He's going to live out of the country for years, perhaps forever, but he still owns the vineyard, and maybe he's going to lease it to them so that they can make a profit off of the sale of the grapes, save that money, and eventually buy the property from him. And maybe each year he takes a little bit off of the bill. But their job is not just to make money for themselves. Their job is to give the portion that they owe, owe the vineyard owner each year. And so the servants are coming to collect what is rightfully his. When they don't give it to him, that's theft. Then they beat up these servants. One, two, three. That's assault. Send them on their way without giving the portion of the crop that he is due. But then the worst crime that they commit he sends his son and they murder him and the people that are listening to Jesus tell this story can't imagine that people would conduct themselves this way live the, live like this they would act like this verse 16 how terrible that such a thing should ever happen and then Jesus turns the table and it's interesting he doesn't echo their concerns he doesn't say yeah it's really awful that people are stolen from they're assaulted and they're even murdered he goes on to talk about something else. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. People have put aside that which matters most. And that which matters most has now gotten its rightful place. And yet bad things are going to happen to people because they reject that cornerstone. You see, despite the fact that these are unbelievable crimes, there is an ultimate crime that Jesus is talking about in these verses. One commentator commentating on, on, uh, commenting on these, uh, these verses says, describes this as a, um, a prophetic autobiography of Jesus. That Jesus is speaking about something that's going to happen in the future, speaking about himself. What is he talking about? He's talking about his death, his execution, his murder by people who reject him. And yet he is ultimately going to be the stone who can deliver people. And he starts out in verse 18 talking about how negatively uh, people who are going to look at him and reject him and turn aside from him, they stumble over him. They stumble over this stone, and as a result, they're broken to pieces. As a result, they will be crushed 
by him falling on them. It's a bleak and really ultimately a horrible picture of their destruction. In other words, Jesus is saying, I, I am here to deliver you. And yet if you look at me and turn your back on me and turn away from me, you will ultimately be destroyed by me. You will be crushed by me. It's tragic that in our day, even the church is giving people false hope that they can be reconciled to God apart from Jesus Christ. And, and we as the people of God who love Christ have better be attentive every hour of every day lest we are turned away as well. Increasingly, are, there are people in evangelical pulpits and who call themselves evangelicals are writers and speaking at conferences that are saying there will be no crushing of those who reject Jesus. And speaking against the very word of God himself, speaking against the very son of God himself. If you, listen, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you have not placed your faith in him to make you right with God. There is a day of accounting coming. There is a day of crushing coming. There is a day of stumbling coming. The ultimate crime is to reject Jesus as Lord and Savior like these religious leaders did. Hear what they said? Verse 19, the teachers of the religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized that he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers who had rejected him. But make no mistake about it. It's not just religious leaders that Jesus came and had a problem with. Sometimes that's, uh, we, we look at the Gospels and see constant friction between Jesus and religious leaders and, and can kind of pretend as if this was Jesus' only problem with people. You religious leaders have, have you've missed the mark. Everybody else, everybody else is okay. And yet Jesus says, every, verse 18, everyone who stumbles over me will be broken. And it will crush, I will crush anyone that this stone falls on. What is it that we stumble over? Things we don't see. We, we stumble over a toy that was left out in the yard. We stumble over a, a rope that was stretched between two posts. It's a load of the ground that we didn't see. We stumble over a, a sidewalk. We didn't realize that it stepped up there or a stair step that we didn't realize was there. I don't know how many years ago it was that we were, Betty and I were down at Inner Harbor and uh, we were walking down toward the edge of the harbor. There was no fence there. It's just a, like a brick concourse and then there's the water. And... Um, we're walking down these steps. I think there were five steps down to this brick concourse, but I saw four. And so I got down to the, what I thought was the last one and stepped like you would to, to, the, you know, to the floor, and instead there was another step. And I, I went sprawling, and uh, I'm lying there in dirty cigarette butts and chewing gum and all that nasty stuff, and, and my gracious wife was laughing at me. I get a lot of mileage out of that story. <laughs> and uh, as I kind of played it back in my mind, 
thinking what it must have looked like, I thought that really was funny if you weren't the guy falling. We tend to, we tend to trip over things that we don't see. And this is the reason that Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the gospel. That's, that's, that's the reason that it's so important for us not just to send missionaries to places like we talked about this morning, but to pray for them that God would open eyes supernaturally because it's not just obstinance. It's not just ignorance. It's a spiritual blindness. Don't see things in front of us. And many people are blind to Jesus. Taking the supernatural blindness, uh, just putting that over here, there's there's also a willfulness over here. It may be that you're here this morning, don't know Christ, and and the reason for that is you, you think you're too far gone. You think the things that you've done are too bad. Did you hear what we said in here? The worst crimes were not theft and not assault and not even murder. My guess is you haven't killed anybody. The worst crime is to reject Jesus and end up stumbling over the stone and being crushed by him. There are others who just don't see their need. We compare ourselves with other people and we think, I'm not as bad as he is. I'm not as bad as she is. And so in the kind of satanic deception that our mind uh, absorbs and embraces, we think, I'm, I'm okay as long as I'm better than some other people. And God says, be careful. Don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to me. All of us have sinned, all of us, no matter how minor our sins seem to be to us or how major they are, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of whom? God. God compares you to himself. Doesn't matter how good you are, you're coming up short. And there is a crushing that is going to come one day. Make no mistake about it. And isn't it interesting that the one who will crush those who reject him is also the one who will save all those who turn to him and make him his cornerstone. It was interesting as Jesus, you kind of follow the progress of the gospels here in Luke, as Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross, he becomes more and more pointed about faith. It's almost like in his early ministry, he's sharing stories and he's, he's um, um, contrasting different people to others. As he, and he kind of lets people kind of think through those things on their own. As he gets closer to the cross, he becomes more and more pointed. And just a little bit ago, Acts, uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 8. He asked this question after he told the story about praying, about the importance of prayer, and the woman who had gone to the unjust judge and, and who didn't really care about her, but she needed justice, and finally, just to get her off his back, he said, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give her justice just to, just to make her go away. 
And then Jesus says a very unusual thing right after that. You're like, where does that come from? He asks a question, but it's not a question that he expects anybody to answer because he knows the answer to it. He's looking way down the road when he comes back the second time. He says, when the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have, has faith? And he knows the answer to the question. It's a rhetorical question. Not many. Not many. And do you want to be one of those remnant, that remnant? Will Jesus find when he comes back that you have faith? Will Jesus find when you breathe your last, like my dad did just a couple of weeks ago, that you have faith. And I want to exhort you today, my friend, if you're apart from Christ, to don't, don't let that go one more minute or one more hour or one more day. Run to him and run to him today. Would you pray with me right now? And if you want to run to Jesus, you can do that right now. I'm not done with my message yet, but God may be done with you in the sense that this is your moment. This is your moment for you to say yes to Christ. This is your moment for the excuses to come to an end for the self-righteous justification to come to an end. This is your moment to put all the excuses behind you and to embrace the Savior who died for you. And there's no magic words you need. Your heart can be expressed in a thousand ways and God can read your mind and knows your heart. But if you want some guide, just pray this prayer after me in your mind. God, I realize that Jesus is the only way for me to be made right with you. And I know that because I'm a sinner who's at odds with you. I'm under your judgment unless I take care of business by trusting in Christ. The one who never sinned I know was able to die for me, for my sins. And I repent of my sin. I turn from my own sin and put my faith in Jesus today. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer and you meant that, you've just moved from being crushed <laughs> to having Jesus be your cornerstone and the one who's made you right with God. Isn't that amazing that at any time and any place under any circumstances, a supernatural transaction can take place that moves you from being God's enemy to being God's son or daughter. That, that, that moves you from an eternal judgment to an eternal blessedness with the Father. You have, been, you have been gone into the court. You've been found guilty. But because of Jesus Christ and trusting him, you've been acquitted of all crimes. Made right. 
Now, what happens for you now? And what happens for us who are right with God in Christ? I want to take you to 1 Peter before I wrap up this message. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, toward the end of your New Testament. <clears throat> Peter says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. There's that language again, metaphor about Jesus. He was rejected by people, but was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones. Now the picture is moved from Jesus being a stone to us being stones. Because after all, we are God's children now, his offspring. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him, in other words, anyone who trusts in Jesus, will never be disgraced. If you have placed your faith in Jesus this morning or if you did it 30 years ago, you'll never be disgraced. You may be disgraced by other people. They may speak ill of you. They may run you down. They may mock you. But you will never be disgraced by the one who matters because of Jesus. Not because you're smart, not because you're rich, not because you're good-looking, not because you're sinless, but you're, 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 you're in Christ. Never be disgraced, no matter how badly you mess up. Yes, you who trust him, verse 7, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, and now here's the bad news again. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble. The rock makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. And when he says stump, not obey God's word, stumble, he's not talking about things like theft, things like assault, things like murder. They stumble because they reject Jesus Christ. And they meet the fate that was planned for them. Listen, these teachers and writers today who are telling people there's no eternal judgment, there's no hell, are defying the very word of God. And they are doing a monumental disservice to lost people. Monumental. The people need to have all the facts so that they can make a decision with all the facts. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, meaning they do not put their trust in Jesus, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them, for all who deny Jesus. That's all the bad news. Here we get to the good news, verse 9. The good news and a commission. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation. And what does a priest do? What is the basic definition of a priest? It's not somebody that dresses up in funny robes and colorful robes. It's somebody who helps connect God to people. That's why Jesus is described in the book of Hebrews as the great high priest. He does the ultimate connecting of people and God. He dies for our sins so that we can be made right with God. But in in a similar sense, you and I are priests for other people. 
We are helping connect other people to God. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful life. Now, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. They made a, a mistake here. And I call this out when I see it. This is still my favorite translation because I think it bridges the gap between um, an accurate rendering of what's uh, been said in the Greek text, but also in an understandable way for us. But that doesn't mean there's not things that I would change. That's true of all translations. The word that they translate here, show, you can show others the goodness of, Christ, of God, is, is only used here in the entire New Testament. And it should be tell out. A more literal translation, you might have the ESV or the NIV or CSB. It says proclaim or declare. It's a verbal thing. It's not just a pictorial thing. It's a verbal thing. <clears throat> it, when it was used in Greek culture outside of the Bible, it meant to reveal something that's secret. And so if you are acquitted before the court of God by trusting in Jesus Christ... You now have the opportunity as God's priests, I have the opportunity as a priest of God to tell out, to declare, to proclaim the goodness of God in the message of Christ. As you come to him, this is the CSB, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know what that says to me? If I understand that correctly, it says you, you are being built. Who's building you? God. You are being built into, some, into something different than you were. And part of that different is that you and I are now ambassadors of Jesus Christ to this world. We are functioning as priests, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. That team from Keystone that went out to Lancaster City a couple of weeks ago to pray with people and share the good news with them, they're, they're being these priests. They are being this, this, this word, this word to the people that are in need of knowing about Jesus but they were empowered by God to do that they were scared they were terrified you are too when you talk to somebody at work when you talk to somebody at school you're scared I the preacher is scared but the power is God's all God's to get us to do that um, I don't know how many of you follow Kim Kardashian If you do, you know that Kanye West bought her a magnificent engagement ring in 2013. They don't know exactly how much it was worth, but somewhere in the neighborhood, two to four million dollars, just like the one you bought your wife. But in 2016, Kim was robbed in a Paris hotel room. Remember that? It scared her to death. And if you can find a picture of Kim's hand these days, the photographers usually aren't photographing her hands. I understand that. But if you find some pictures, you will notice a tiny silver band on her ring finger, not a big flashy diamond worth several million dollars because she's scared. In fact, she doesn't even keep 
her jewelry at her house anymore because she's scared. And I wondered, I thought, wouldn't it be, um, if you had a, a battalion of armed bodyguards around her, and I understand she does have a bodyguard, but if you had a battalion around you all the time, wouldn't that lessen your fears? And if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, you and I have way more than a battalion of bodyguards. We have Lord Jesus Christ living in us, power of the Holy Spirit oozing out of us. And even despite our fears, we can carry out the mission of being priests to this world who desperately knows, needs to know that the stone that will crush them unless he turned to him wants to save them and died to save them. You may not go out the streets with Ellen and BJ, but all of us work someplace, we go to school someplace, we live in neighborhoods, all of us have people around us that we long to see find Jesus to be the cornerstone instead of the crushing stone. Father, thank you for Jesus, the hope, only hope that any of us have. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to say yes to you. Go to the cross and die for the likes of me and us. And that's a message our world so desperately needs. On the other side of the globe, here, Paradise, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, U.S. And wherever you place us, where, whether it is on the other side of the globe or it's on an airplane or whether it's a few states away or whether it's in our schools and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, help us. We're powerless on our own, but help us to be these priests that you have made us to be and you have equipped us to be and you have called us to be for your glory. In Jesus' name.